Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal. We're on a, a tight schedule here, so let's get started. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Let's talk about what we watched this the two weeks. It's been two weeks since our last movie journal. It's been two weeks since my last confession. Um, uh, I will start with uh, a movie that I watched that we you will hear a little bit more about on our upcoming episode uh, called to have and have not mm. a Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall movie, the Humphrey, I mean, sort of the, the initial Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall movie, the one yeah. where they, where they yeah. met and where they fell in love. And that's sort of the selling point of the movie is their relationship and their chemistry. As far as movie overall, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, an echo of Casablanca. Yeah. I, uh, I think it's fine. They're great. They're great together. And like, it's, um, and it's Howard to, Hawks. Yeah. So yeah, clearly everyone's, everyone knows what they're doing. It just, yeah. it's, it's literally, is it a year or two years later than Casablanca? It just seems it's yeah. so similar. I think, I think what gets me is just that it feels like the story never seen. There's a lot of Casablanca in there, but also like the story just seems for Howard, again, for Howard Hawks, who knows what he's doing. The film is paced weird. It never feels well, like there's a sense of urgency. Um, do, do you know, know what it, I mean when yeah. I say that? Do you know, I, I haven't read the book to have and have not. Yeah. But it's the book that uh, Ernest Hemingway considered his worst novel. And okay. the story of the book or the story of the movie is like a small part of the beginning of the book. It's not even the whole story. I think Howard Hawks just basically said, all right, I'm going to make a movie uh, based on this Ernest Hemingway novel to like sort of sell that name as an Ernest Hemingway movie, but yeah. this novel isn't very good. So I'm going to sort of take what I can to try and form a movie uh, out of it. And apparently like the whole, they kept the title because it was the title of the book, but the whole part about like the haves and have nots in the novel isn't even a part of the movie. Yeah. So the, the, the name of the movie doesn't actually have much to do with the actual content of the movie. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a bad movie. I don't think I would warn anybody away from it, but, um, but yeah, it's, yeah, again, it's if you're into, if you're one of those people who's into old Hollywood and yeah. those stars, like it's a, it's a must see because that's, like I said, that's the whole point of it to me is, is the Bogart Bacall stuff, but they've been, they were in other movies. Like but that's, the, the, first, that's the one that started it. So yeah. there is, and that. it's the one that has the famous, maybe the most famous yeah. Lauren Bacall line of all time. Yeah. Uh, you know how to whistle, don't you? Yeah. But for me, like go watch Key Largo, like, uh, which has the added bonus of having Edward G. Robinson in it. Uh, and then I, uh, so from an old one to a new one, I saw the new Ken Loach film. It's called Jimmy's Hall. Um, it's uh, it, Ken Loach in his sort of most classical leftist populist mode. It's it's a movie that is a, based on a true story, but is very much a political point of view movie. It's... Um, yeah, uh, basically, the, the it's the story of this guy uh, in the 1930s in Ireland who was essentially deported, and he was an Irish citizen who was deported <coughs> without trial. Um, which is, uh, I mean, I think no matter how you feel about the guy's politics, you and I will disagree because sure. he's a communist. That's why they kicked him out of the country. But the idea that any country could just kick one of its own people out of the country with no trial uh, whatsoever is it's, it's not, it's not a good look Ireland. (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, well, a, I'm getting some conflicting, uh, messages from you, Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's Ken Loach. He knows what he's doing. He gets some really great, uh, sort of naturalistic performances out of what I assume is a mix of professional and non-professional actors. Yeah. Uh, the period detail is, uh, fantastic. The costumes and everything. Um, basically this guy, Jimmy, uh, ran a hall in this small, very small, uh, Irish town where he would, you know, different townspeople would teach classes or they'd hold dances or basically they would do all this stuff that was at the time, you know, Ireland is, uh, I mean, is still, but essentially, especially was then one of the most Catholic places in the world. Um, and they were doing stuff that was the, uh, the purview of the church education, you know, social events in a town this small was about the church. So this is, um, this is a, a movie about a communist that puts him not in, he's not, it's not a communist, it's not communism, uh, in opposition to capitalism so much as it is communism, communism in opposition to the church. Mm-hmm. That's the church are, I guess the bad guys, although the, the, the priest character, the head priest of the town is, it's actually a fantastic character because he is, he is the villain. He is the antagonist, but he's also a smart guy who, you know, he's not painting this with a broad brush. He is, he's very well, uh, well versed and educated in the tenets of communism and, 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 and things like that. He just disagrees vehemently and uses his power, yeah. uh, against it. But at the, you know, there's a, uh, I guess, no, nah, I guess that would be spoiling it, but he has, uh, it, it it's one of the, well, actually one of the better parts of the movie is that it has, um, uh, a, a really great villain who's, if not entirely sympathetic, he's not just a one note bad guy. Well, it's interesting because if you were to flip it around, like if you were to flip it around and it's a communist country, and the main character is a churchgoer, right, trying which to is start a church, trying yeah. to start a church, which by the way, there is historical precedent for sure. Yeah. Uh, then like it could go the other way as well. It really is just like an interesting, it sounds like an interesting exercise in point of view. Right. Yeah. And who has the power, you know, and how do they, wield, and so. how do they wield it? That yeah. sounds very interesting. Um, okay. So I saw, you know, David, every once in a while, <laughs> uh, you and I, and, and probably any number of our writers, kind of take this attitude of like, all right, I'm going to take one for the team here. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> now, aside from the occasional uh, motion comic that apparently is my job to talk about, <laughs> aside from that, uh, I recently volunteered to watch Tom McCarthy's The Cobbler. Now, what, what, are, you, no, no, what are you talking about? You're a Tom McCarthy fan. I love Tom McCarthy. I think he's a wonderful writer, a wonderful director, and he knows his way around actors, uh, having been one, actually, uh, himself. Uh, but The Cobbler was getting such horrible reviews. Uh-huh. And I'll say this. I don't think it deserves them. It's better than I heard. But it is mystifying this movie. I don't know who, I don't know who it's for. (laughs) I don't know what the goal was. Like it's this, it's there's good performances. It's shot in maybe the most forgettable way I've ever seen. Like just very straightforward, very, very mid nineties comedy. If you know what I mean? 
Um, well, I mean, Tom McCarthy's made some good movies, but he's never been much of a visual stylist. Right. So think how mediocre this needs to be <laughs> to for be me to take note. Worth commenting. <laughs> and also, maybe it's the fact that this is a the, the film ha- it has a magical realism quality. Mm-hmm. And so maybe because there's a magical quality, maybe I assume there should be more uh, style, uh, style to it. Right. But anyway, uh, and that's the thing is like, it's... Uh, Adam Sandler plays this cobbler in New York who discovers that uh, he finds this old, uh, not sewing machine, I don't remember the name of it, but it's basically so that you can resole shoes. It's a sewing machine. A sol- oh, there we go. <laughs> All right, we'll get you next time. <laughs> so, the, uh, and he finds that if he resoles somebody's shoes with this old machine, and then he puts their shoes on, he will <clears throat> become them physically. It's not merely that he looks like them. He physically is them. And so. So wait. Okay. I'm me, right? Yeah. Barely. I take my shoes to be resold by this cobbler, right? Mm -hmm. He uses this machine. He puts on my shoes. He becomes me. What happens to me? You're still you. So there's two of this person walking around when he's wearing these shoes. That's right. And so uh, it's. So it's like, okay, so it seems to be maybe this little fable or something about walking in somebody's shoes. If somebody ma- makes mention of that, that. Like, it's a privilege to be able to walk in another man's shoes and live life as he would. And it's like, okay, so maybe this is about empathy. It's not about empathy. It winds up being this... W- and then it turns into this fucking weird superhero movie. It wow. feels at times like unbreakable, but like slight and forgettable and who gives a shit it's so weird but i'm happy i saw it because it's a mystery to me this movie it's very strange very strange yeah you're gonna you have the blu-ray now i feel like you're gonna be drawn to this you're gonna keep rewatching it but i need to to crack this i need to crack this code (laughs) all right um i saw a movie that i was very skeptical about going into okay it's called Poltergeist. It's not the Toby Hooper film. It's the new Gil Keenan film, Poltergeist. Right. And Director you, of Monster House, which Director I love. Monster House and City of Ember. Um, which I didn't see. Which I saw. It's fine. Um, now, you know me, Tyler, and you the listeners know Once me. Once again, barely. Uh, Poltergeist is one of my favorite movies of all time. Maybe my favorite horror movie of all time. It's up there. I mean, obviously, there's like American Werewolf in London, which I don't know if you consider that a horror movie, but that's... That's up there. Anyway, um, so I was skeptical, and I know what the reviews are. But I got to tell you, this movie is a fun time. You will have a fun time if you go see Poltergeist. Is it scary? Uh, there are things. Uh, there are things that are definitely uh, okay. scary. There's a um, there, there's there's a bit with a uh, uh, a drill. Uh, almost poking through someone's head that, uh, is, is pretty tense. Uh, and there's some scary stuff and mostly it's, I think it's so not the, like, um, <coughs> from the, like, you know, the, you know, the production company, platinum, platinum doom, yeah, yeah. platinum dunes who make the overly slick, overly serious remakes, yeah. right? This is a fun time. You don't cast Sam Rockwell, and Rosemary DeWitt as the parents to have them be all dour and yeah. stuff. And that's the thing about uh, Craig T. Nelson and I forget now who played the. Is the it Joe mom. Beth Williams? 
No, hang on. I might be wrong about that. No, that's the daughter, right? Oh, shoot. Uh, I'm trying to think who was the mom this in the original. Me. This is killing me. Um, but like, you know, don't, don't forget when you watch the original that they're kind of goofy. Like there's a whole scene where they get high in the original. Both yes, of guys. They're bad parents. Um, no, they're not bad parents at all. I'm just saying yeah. they get high and then there's a poltergeist. <laughs> um, you know? but, uh, they don't get high in this movie, but, it, they do have a, a fun time and there's a great sort of sense of humor and fun to it. Um, Jared Harris is really hamming it up in a way that is delightful. It's, uh, I gotta tell you, uh, I had a really good time. Uh, I laughed. Um, there's, uh, uh Joe Beth Williams is in fact the name of, uh, the, okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Um, the so kids are Ro- Dominique Dunn. That's the older daughter, but who's yeah. the little girl? Heather O'Rourke. Heather O'Rourke. That's her. Name. Yeah. Um, anyway, there's uh yeah, I was trying, I, there, there's a couple of things that are a little, there, there are some ways that they update it for the modern age that are really interesting. There's a little horror bit with iPhone headphones, uh, that, uh, is pretty effective. Conversely, there's also a little bit with a, uh, drone camera that like is, seems a little, I, I think drones in general, like they're not enough a part of daily life yet. Yeah. I don't to, know what a drone camera is. It's well, it's just a, I mean, a drone is, you know what a drone is. Mm-hmm. It's essentially like a remote control helicopter, but it's it as the bombs other countries. But, but you it. can also buy personal little drones that you can use for oh, okay. nonviolent means. Mm-hmm. And they strap a camera to it. Oh, okay. Uh, and they send it into the, so it goes into the other world. So there's yeah, a bit that's where not you part of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's the thing. It feels like it's trying too hard by, by, by introducing something that's like, this is not yet like iPhones. Yeah. Smartphones. Sure. That's the part of most viewers lives drones. I don't know. I'm not on, quite on board, but the thing is I was on board enough with the movie at that point that I didn't actually mind yeah. that much. Uh, it also ends now. All right. Okay. So the movie's good. We're done with that. Moving on. Let, let me ask you something. The movie ends the, the end credit song is, a cover by spoon, a band I like yep. of the cramp song TV set, which is great. It's a great song. Okay. My, but when it, it's such a faithful cover, my first reaction is why not just use the cramp song? But then I remembered, Oh, a new song by an established band will sell more. Yeah. You know, I don't know. iTunes downloads or whatever. Sure. Does that bother you? Like, does that, I guess just the fact that I'm hearing this song, that it's like, this is so close to being the cramps. Like, it, it, it kind of took me, I mean, I know the movie's over at that point, but it kind of left a sour taste. Like, oh, this is just pure. That's how I felt consumerism. about, about, uh, oh hell no. I can't remember, uh, the name. Is there a band called Adam Ant? There was a guy called Adam Ant. No. Uh, who's the, damn it. The band that covered smooth criminal for American pie Two. Oh, uh, <laughs> alien ant farm, alien ant farm. That's it. <laughs> and like that, it's like, Adam, man, that's not right. Uh, Adam Antium, that's it. But, uh, yeah, like that song is not that different than the Michael Jackson version. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's slightly heavier, but it's like, but yeah, it's, I think it doesn't bother me in the sense I'm like, who, like, I'm not going to die on that hill. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I guess you're right. So, but I guess I just, I like that cramp song so much and the spoon version is, is close enough that yeah. I'm like, it would have been cool if I were actually listening to the cramps at the end of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's poltergeist. And then I saw a, 
uh, French film um, that's also partially in English called Gemma Bovary, which I really liked. I actually have to finish my review and put it up tomorrow. Um, but it, uh, it, the Gemma Arterton plays Gemma Bovary. That's weird. And um, she's not actually the lead of the movie. And someone, she's, uh, I guess, almost a co-lead, but really it's about the the man who lives across the street from her, who's a, a baker and an intellect and a reader who becomes sort of obsessed with the similarities between Gemma Bovary, this English woman who's just moved to this small town in Normandy in France and Madame Bovary from Gustave Flaubert's novel, which okay. was coincidentally written in that town. Okay. That's, that's the premise. So it's kind of, it has kind of a com a comedic premise. It has a very fun sort of uh, lilting sort of, cadence and tone it's kind of bubbly but then it gets there's some heavier stuff there's also some incredibly sensual stuff which um i, I just I, i'm developing a theory between uh Gemma bovary which is um directed by a woman and the tv series outlander which is very much from a woman's point of view yeah. that uh as much as we tend to treat sex as the sort of purview of, of men that men are the ones who love sex or whatever. I think when it comes to movies and television, I think a lot of times women do it better because it's not just about the, 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 what's the word, the spectacle of it. You know, uh, I, I feel like it becomes more of an experiential thing in a lot of cases. And then there, I'm sure there are men who would do it well too, but I just, uh, the, this, this confluence of this and outlander at the same time. And the idea of, I've been seeing so many sex scenes recently that are from a female point of view that are so much more rewarding and effective and sensual than the stuff you see on like game of Thrones, where it's just like, you know, hot. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or, or just like almost like, and, and there's a place for this sort of stuff too, but it's like, just about the physicality of it and about, you know, like, you know, breasts swinging with every thrust and that sort of thing that, that is very pornographic. Thank you for that. You know what I mean? That's, that's the sort of thing you see on game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, and well, I mean, I have, I have a theory as to like why, yeah, I think you, you would probably need both. Um, but like my any theory I have might be viewed as like somehow offensive or sexist or anything like that. But I think it's just, you know, it's, you know, uh, you, you and I have talked on the show about, or, and I think we've talked in, in everyday life about how like sex is a thing that certainly both genders enjoy. Uh -huh. Neither one has a monopoly on enjoyment, but it's a different experience for one. It's, being accepted into something and for the other yeah. it's having some it's a it's invasive and yeah. and that's a bit more vulnerable <laughs> have you ever heard bill burr's bit yes, about it i was yeah go ahead for the listener bill burr has a bit about if a guy if you're at a party and there's a cake and one of your friends dares you to go stick your finger in the cake that's an easier sell yeah. but if one of your friends <laughs> dares you to go grab some of that cake and stick it up your ass yeah that you're gonna have a little more questions about that situation yeah. you gotta yeah. proceed with a little bit more caution there yeah that's bill burr's bit about the difference between how men and women view sex yeah and so i think because there's an invasiveness and, and a vulnerability invasive sounds negative but you know what i mean um it's penetrative yeah like i think uh that anybody making a uh uh directing or writing a sex scene from 
a female point of view, I think it will be different than the ones that you and I are used to, mostly because like it's mostly male directors, but also you and I are male viewers. Right. But what I'm saying, I guess, is that the, what we think of as the, the more common female way of presenting sex works better for a movie when I'm not actually there or the point isn't for it to be pornographic, you know, do you know what I mean? Uh, because a movie is repeat in different words. Uh, a, a movie is an art form that is meant to stimulate multiple senses. And so for a more, a more sensual sex scene is going to be more effective than in, in a movie, in an artistic movie setting. Sure. Than just showing us the, the nudity and the body slapping together that you would see, uh, in pornography, which again, that's not, I'm not saying it's less than because I think pornography right. has a purpose and has a place. I'm, I'm not, I've never, and I'm not in, have never been anti pornography at all, but I'm saying for what movies are supposed to do, unless and I'm sure there are cases where a scene in a movie is, uh, meant to be somewhat pornographic and mm-hmm. that's part of the, uh, tapestry and that works. But I guess what I'm saying for what movies are meant to do, I find recently that not necessarily, I mean, I said female directors because this is, this one is directed by a woman, but just the, the female gaze, I guess the, fe- the, the, the feminine experience of sex translates better in film. Well, and it might be because, okay, again, I want to step lightly cause I don't want to speak for women, but what oh, I, I will can't. say, look, right. You're, you're the feminist. So I'm the card carrying right feminist. Ahead. I've got, the have free reign to represent the points of view of all women. Yeah. No, no, you don't get it. I'm on your side. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you should listen to me. I'm, but, uh, oh, maybe this is be- like, you remember when there was the yes, all women hashtag thing after yes. the Ala Vista shootings, every, I, I would read those and I was so moved by them. And then some dude thinking he was being helpful would tweet something like, wow, I'm really, impressed and moved by all these hashtag yes women things. it's like no shut up the whole point of this is that you shut the fuck up for one day about this you know you blew it you think you're helping because you're so fucking entitled that you think you the conversation isn't valid unless you have a voice in it just shut the fuck up that's all that you had to do was just shut up yeah but then you wouldn't know how how enlightened he is yeah exactly how morally superior because that's the thing it's one thing he can enlighten it's himself one thing, right off right into a lake as far as I'm concerned. It's one thing, you know, for women to say this, because I mean they're women. Of course they're invested. I'm choosing to be invested. I don't need to be. Right. I am choosing to be a part of this because I'm so fucking better than you. Right. And the, you with, you know, so now the SL woman thing is really validated because the men have exactly given it their stamp of yes. approval. Oh, it made me so mad. Those douchebags. Yeah. All right. Um, let's move. What is the next thing you saw? Uh, uh, let's see. Okay. So, huh. oddly enough, we go into this discussion from this discussion into George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road, which, which I still haven't which seen. Has, the, you, you told me about this because I had no concept of it and I didn't know that there were people that were angry about it. Oh, those men's rights dummies. Yeah. I, d- uh, I, uh, I don't just let the movie be what it's going to be. Right. Like 
and that, right, can, but that, for can, those... that can apply to anything but like it's just like like yeah okay for, uh, the, for the listeners who don't know there were some of the mra or men's rights activist dummies who uh basically their point of view was this movie tricked us or even there was a, a lot of, i mean this started before the movie even came out people were saying what I'm reading about this movie, this movie's trying to trick us. Yeah, yeah. Like, this movie looks like it's a movie for guys, but really, it's about these broads. And it's like, and right there, right there, it looks like, it's like, it's about these broads. I thought it was four guys. I know it's hard to explain, it's hard to believe, those things don't have to be at war with each other. <laughs> right. Like, this, in many ways, could not be more of a guy's movie in execution but the fact that it's about right, women quote unquote right yeah like who gives a shit <laughs> yeah, exactly like, i mean do would like i don't know of anybody who gets angry i i guess if you feel like you're being tricked okay i guess i understand that a little bit but like charlie's theron has above the title billing just as tom hardy does mm-hmm. and she plays prominently in the trailer and I don't know. It's just, it astounds me that, and by the way, you, so you said men's rights twice now, and I will say, while I don't necessarily consider myself part of the men's rights movement, I do understand, like there's these idiots who will use the term men's rights for basically whatever comes into their fucking head and whatever they choose to be offended about when it comes to something vaguely feminist, which I don't even think the film is feminist. It's just, this is the story they're telling. <laughs> if, if Max, like if this took place in 1850 and Max was played by John Wayne, the story could be exactly the same. Uh-huh. It could be like, Hey, we're, we're saving these prostitutes from this terrible pimp over here. No one would have a problem with it. It's a very classic story. What's the, like, what's the issue? I don't know, but I think to get to the men's rights thing, I think it's sort of like, uh, and I, I mean, you and I have had disagreements about certain terms before. Sure. But yeah, yeah. with Gamergate, with the Tea Party, there comes a point, part where the, the public-facing part of these movements is what it is to the point that the name that name essentially has to be forfeited, I guess by the people. Cause I know what you're talking about. There are issues about, um, custody. Yeah. And, custody and, 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 that, that, that's, I mean, that's a big one that, that and the way, that like, courts, like the way male students are treated in elementary school is it's something I become uh, fascinated by. Okay. You have to tell me, uh, someday you'll tell me cause I haven't read yeah. about that, but the idea that, you know, the, the, the it's, that it's so much more difficult for fathers to get custody, yeah. even if they're more fit or whatever. Yeah. That's a real problem. But I think referring to that as a men's rights issue yeah. is at this point going to do more of a disservice than anything else because I'm men's rights to... is the realm of these dummies now. But like what, uh, like what's the, what's the term now? Like, what <laughs> I don't we, know. Can we take it back? <laughs> I, I would hope. I guess maybe not, these guys but... are yelling the, the loudest, but that's the thing. It's like, it's such a, Mad Max Fury Road is so fucking great and it's so exciting and it's so visceral and it's so pulse pounding. Like, I feel like the, I feel like the only way these guys could be angry is before the movie comes out. And if they don't see it, cause I guarantee you within 30 seconds you are on board and you don't care if it's about 
uh, a female protagonist or a male protagonist. Like you don't care. Like it's it's done in such an engaging way. I I guarantee that those guys, dumb though they may be, I guarantee that even they would be on board with this. It's just ugh. okay. I uh, oh, I, so it's a wonderful film, by the way, everybody. I really like it, and David, I think you should see it too. I'm sure. Yeah, everyone tells me. Even you know, um, the the buzz is so strong for this movie that even my wife, who abhors action movies pretty much across the board, <laughs> is like, I think I want to see Fury Road. Yeah. So um, let's move on. I saw for the first time something a movie that I've been that I do. You ever a movie that you're just like, I know from everything I've heard about this movie then I'm going to love it. And I just have never gotten around to it before. I feel like we've talked about this. Sure. Like just movies like, I know I'll get to that eventually. Yeah. So I finally saw Ernst Lubitsch's The Shop Around the Corner. Oh, okay. And have you seen it? I have not. It is as great as I hoped it would be. It's, uh, it, it's, it's the kind of sort of, I, I guess, smaller focus, narrower focus, lower stakes, romantic comedy, essentially, that is made with such attention to detail and with so much weight behind uh what it's what it's trying to say that it's just i mean it's it's like 98 minutes or something and it just like it's a beautiful experience and everyone should see the shop around the corner the story is that jimmy stewart uh plays the head salesman at this shop um and there's where's it located uh, it's around the corner from a bigger shop i guess um and then there's a woman who gets hired at the shop uh, as a as a clerk or a sales girl. I can't remember. Um, and they can't stand each other. They're having a classic, yeah. you know, uh, bickering type of friendship. But they're also they also both through this like it's the 30s. So I don't know. If it's like I guess like Craigslist casual encounters or something. But um, <laughs> they're writing letters back and forth okay. anonymously starting this relationship dating sure. and they don't realize that they're the same person. So in these letters, they're falling in love every day at the shop. They hate each other more and more. That's the premise of the yeah. movie. I have seen you've got mail, which was inspired, which was uh, right. an adaptation of that. But in that they work in different places, right? Yes. Like, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, competing places. In fact, Compe- yeah, yeah. This they're, they're at the same, same store. Um, but it, uh, well, what I didn't realize about it is that it's not a two-hander like that makes it sound. It's an ensemble comedy about all the employees at the store. And it almost, I don't know if it's based on a play, but it could be because almost, except for like a scene in a hospital room and a scene at a cafe, it pretty much all play, takes place inside this store. Hmm. Um, and it examines so many different things about, um, class and about what it means to be successful or satisfied in life, you know, in terms of on the one hand, you've got the people who make more money and on the other hand, you've got people who have more satisfying and loving home lives. Right. And you've got that sort of, uh, push and pull. And sometimes it gets, it brushes up against the being a little bit moralistic, uh, in the fact that the owner of the store sort of goes, has the roughest journey. Um, but I, it, but it never vilifies him. Right. He's actually a really likable. He, he can sometimes be a little brusque with his employees, but he's a really likable character. So when he goes through a hard time, uh, because it turns out his wife is having an affair with one of the other hmm. salespeople, um, it isn't the sense of ah, the rich guy gets his comeuppance. Yeah, he, he was focused on the wrong things in life. It's a it's sad, and you want him to come out of it, and oh, he good. sort of learns some lessons. It's 
it's just a wonderful movie. And I imagine this will be the first of many times that I will watch this movie, uh, over my life. Oh, good. Um, and then I also saw another, I, I had a really good week of watching movies. All right. By the way, um, I saw, this is recently put out by the criterion collection. I'll have a review up soon. Um, Jean Renoir's 1951 film, the river. Okay. Um, which is, uh, it's, I guess it's sort of selling point is that it was filmed entirely on location in, in India. India. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. Because uh, I say it that way because it's not, uh, there are some Indian characters, but it's mostly about, uh, British people. And then this one American guy. So it's, um, the, the main character is a girl who's a teenager who is the eldest of, uh, four children. And then she has a neighbor who's her best friend, another British girl who's a little bit older. And then this American soldier, um, who was wounded in, um, it doesn't say, I guess given 1951, I don't know if it's supposed to be Korea or something, but he comes to live in this town and, uh, the, um, older girl who's more the neighbor, older girl who's more age appropriate Mm -hmm. starts a sort of flirtation with this guy. But this girl who's the main character, who's like 14 or 15, um, is also feeling very strong feelings for this guy, but you know, he's older than her. And it's, it's, I guess it's a, it's a girl's coming of age story, uh, in a classic sense, but it's so perfectly observed and it, it can be absolutely, uh, heartbreaking. You feel so, so sad for her in so many, in so many ways, but it's in the, but it's shot beautifully in technicolor, I guess. I mean, it's on Blu-ray, so it looks great. Yeah. You're not actually seeing it in like, it's not being, you know, three strip technicolor or whatever. I guess that's how it was shot. Um, but then it, it also has one of the highlights is that, um, the, the girl tries to, in one point tries to impress the guy by writing a story and telling him the story that she made up about, uh, the Krishna. And so it goes into this fairly long, maybe not super long, maybe like 10 minute long, sort of like fantasy type sequence of this story. That's, just beautiful. It's just like her talking and these characters essentially like dancing hmm. for like 10 minutes and it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, so yeah, I would very, very highly recommend picking up that Blu-ray from criterion, uh, the river. I've only seen two, uh, genre noir films and that's rules of the game. Yeah. And grand illusion. I've never seen grand illusion. Actually. I love both of them. I think I, pref- I prefer grand illusion, frankly, but, um, but I think both of them are great. I oh, think I rules, just rules of the game is, uh, I can't remember if I put it on my, I believe it was did, on your top we did 10. top 10 of all time, but yeah. it, it's probably a top 10 of all time movie. Yeah. yeah. I should lend you a grand illusion. I do own it. Um, and I think you would okay. love it. Um, okay. So I, by the way, I remembered, uh, I have one more movie than I thought okay. I did. So I, I also remembered one, okay. one more right. rewatch. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I saw Brad Bird's Tomorrowland and there's a review on the website. I'm sorry. What's it called? Tomorrowland. <laughs> Why? Why did you? I say just that? I thought it was Tomorrowland. <laughs> did I did I pronounce it that way? No, you said Tomorrowland. Oh, okay. I say Tomorrowland. <sighs> but that sounds like you want to go to a place called Marland, and you're like <laughs> Tomorrowland <laughs> and beyond. <laughs> uh, this film uh, is it's not bad. It's not great. Um, it's getting a lot of bad reviews, and it shouldn't like visually it's this is your poltergeist yeah i mean i don't understand like visually it's marvelous there's a nice virtuoso filmmaking that brad bird's great at um i will say that i think 
I think people's issue with it is the way that it uh, executes its message, and it is a message movie. But I think it's a message movie in the same way that, like, The Day the Earth Stood Still is a message movie. It feels very much like a kind of a throwback to, like, 50s sci-fi, where they wear their heart on their sleeve, and they've got something, they've, they've got something to say. <laughs> um, now... And I and I like what it has to say. It actually is promoting an idea of positivity. And I and I don't remember what review I read, but they said it's interesting that Tomorrowland is is right, slotted right in between uh, Mad Max and San Andreas. <laughs> you know, two films that are just about like uh, it's like one is about okay, the world's gone to hell and we're all fucked, and the other is okay, it's, it's about two. <laughs> um, and this is one that's like, yeah, let's maybe try to be a bit more upbeat and optimistic. And it's like, that's a neat idea. And it's refreshing this time of year. Um, I think the way that it communicates, I think the way that it communicates it is a little bit too obvious, a little bit too hard on its sleeve. And also, you know, when you're going to kind of go against uh the the norm of what people will just accept about the future. I feel like you need to, you don't have to go into a lot of detail, but I feel like it needs to be more than just like, Hey gang, come on, let's be upbeat. You know, like I feel like you need a, at least one clear cut example of how that's going to change, uh, Hmm. things for the better. And so it'll make more sense if you, if you see the movie, but it's not a bad movie. I don't dislike it. Um, I don't love it. And I think it could have been, it could have been done better, but I appreciate a lot of what it's trying to do and its visual sense and that kind of thing. I just think the script could have been better. So um, that script is by, among others, Damon Lindelof. Of course it is. And I, I actually wasn't going to bring up that I've been rewatching Lost, um, but I will bring it up real, real quick. Okay. Because you mentioned Tomorrowland being a message movie. Yeah. And in rewatching Lost, and I kind of felt this way at the time, but it's really sunk in now. Lost is a message show that most people, most people ignored that fact because they were so caught up in it being this mystery show and they were dedicating themselves to interpreting it through that lens. Like this is a show about mysteries and the quality of the show will ultimately be judged by how well these mysteries resolve. And that was never my, I mean, as much as I really enjoyed that part of the intrigue of the show. Yeah. That was never my chief reason for watching Lost. And rewatching it, it sunk in even more. <coughs> well, you have something to say about this. Well, just to me, like, I'm perfectly fine with somebody approaching it first and foremost as a mystery show. And that's how they look at it. But, and this goes back to something you and I have talked about when it comes to TV, to, sit, to dismiss every aspect of the show because you don't like how this part wrapped up. It's like, even if, even purely on a mystery standpoint, it's still very effective for six full ye- seasons. Yeah, you know? I'd say five. I, Cause I actually have a lot of problems with the sixth season in general. That's fine. And but certainly I do, from I, the story standpoint. Yeah. I like, the, I actually like the final episode quite a bit, yeah. but the sixth season and that whole flash sideways thing, it just didn't, I, once it's all said and done, I get it. Yeah. But uh, maybe this is sort of goes back to what you're saying about Tomorrowland, like needing a better script. Like I get what you're going for with the, with it. Yeah. It does have some problems, but that doesn't, mean that that lost wasn't fantastic and i think i always hesitated to reduce lost in terms of its message to being about the importance of 
letting go of the, you know, the, yeah. your, your hangups or whatever, because for the longest time, especially while that show was on, that felt kind of, kind of simple and trite to just say it's about that. Yeah. Then I spent three years in therapy and learned what that is really about and what it really means to not be able to let go of something, to hold on to something and how difficult a journey it can be. Yeah. Uh, and I am, in, I am loving lost even more now the second time around than I did, uh, the first time, especially since uh, given, I know people don't like the way it ended, but rewatching it, a lot of the things that are mysterious actually do make sense in a broad way. Once you know, sure. once you know about, okay, who's Jacob, who's the man in black and what is the purpose of the Island? You can kind of fit everything that happens into one of those. Okay. That's Jacob. That's man in black. Or that's just the Island being the Island. Yeah. You can kind of fit it in, in a way that it all sort of makes sense. What doesn't, I mean, I'm more bothered by, plot threads that were abandoned than I am by mysteries that weren't solved. Oh yeah. Like you know? Walt, like to Walt, me, that's, or, that's the big thing that bothered me. <laughs> I remember one of, one of my favorite sort of like cliffhangers or like end of an episode is Jack turning to Anna Lucia and saying, how long do you think it would take to train an army? And that's a great, and then lost. That's a great ending. Yeah. They never did anything like that. Yeah. That Apparently never, she gave a bad answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The next She's like, scene I don't was know, like, eight years. Yeah. Like, oh, all right. No, oh, forget it. Back to the drawing board. All right. Or, or she says, I don't know, like two weeks. And he's like, all right, just curious. <laughs> all right. So that's uh lost. I didn't think I was going to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, let me take a drink real quick. Got to wet my whistle. Um, and I want to talk about a movie that, I don't know if you've seen this movie. Okay. If you haven't, you need to drop everything that you are doing in your life and see it because should, it's, I, should I unplug the mic? <laughs> yeah. Just. Because this is, it's one of the greatest crime movies I've ever seen in my life and you will love it if you haven't seen it. Okay. The friends of Eddie Coyle. Oh no, I haven't. It's amazing. Well, it's, I, I know a lot about it and I love Robert Mitchum and I, I know that I think it's based on a book yeah, it is by the guy whose name I've forgotten already, but he wrote, he wrote the book that inspired killing them softly. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And, and apparently Peter Boyle's character in the friends of Eddie Coyle is at least in the books, the same. I didn't see killing them softly, okay. but there's a guy who owns a bar. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Apparently they're supposed to be the same character, at least in the book. Okay. Yeah. It's uh <clears throat> And I've heard great things. I, I forget who. I, I, actually, I think it might have been friend of the show, Josh Fadum, who was telling me about it sometime somewhat recently and said that it was great. Well, it's just out uh, on Blu-ray from Criterion. Again, I'll have a review up soon. I kind of felt behind on my home video reviews. So I'll, I have these. Uh, they're in the chamber. I just got to find time to get them onto, into, onto paper. So if we're, if, we're, if we're tallying these up, you got Criterion Renoir. Uh-huh. You got Criterion Friends of Eddie Coyle. I got The Cobbler uh-huh. and Wolverine versus Sabretooth. <laughs> I feel like something's yeah. not working out here. Yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> but, you know, I'm doing a lot of the legwork. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm getting fine. these. That's fine. Um, but, yeah, it's a fantastic movie, and it feels like uh, it's, I mean, it's uh, early 70, 73, maybe, and it's it feels like the culmination of every great crime movie you've seen before then, including Rafifi. Did you already mention who directed it? Uh, Peter Yates directed Peter Yates. Oh, okay, um, yes. Who did Bullet. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so it's a culmination of things like Rafifi and all the great crime movies that came up to it. And it lays the groundwork for all the great crime movies 
that come after it, including one of one that I have personally championed for years. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite crime movies, even though it doesn't have a great reputation, the way of the gun. Yeah, sure. There's so much like there's a scene where it's a character. It's not even the main character, but it's a character who's a gun dealer. Yeah. And he's going to buy from his dealer, some machine guns. And he gets the impression that the guy who's in the, he's driving, he's driving his car. He's got the guy, he gets the impression this guy's setting him up to get robbed. So the, it, the movie takes such time detailing how he comes to that conclusion and then does the deal in a way that keeps him from being vulnerable. So he sends the guy ahead. He gets out of his car, turns on his headlights. He goes and hides in the bush. You know, he like, that's very, that's very Rafifi. I love very Rafifi and very way of the gun, like yeah. the, about the process of being a criminal Yeah, and about how, you know, you think uh, like uh, it's tempting for those of us in the straight life to think of criminals as being, uh, you know, low lifes or whatever. But this guy, this, like this guy who sells guns and he's a main, he's a major character in the movie. He's not the main character. Obviously Eddie Coy will be, but you really see just how hard he works. Like him doing this for a living is a 24 seven job. Uh, and he has you, to be really smart. Are you curious to see killing them softly now? Cause I think you'd love, yeah, I mean, I think I already kind of was, but, uh, yeah, the friends of Eddie Coyle, man, man alive. You got to see this. Um, yeah, and, I do like anything that seems like, you know, Peter Boyle, Robert Mitchell, just the idea, like these are guys that have, you know, these aren't like brash young yeah. upstarts. You know, these are guys that have been in life for a while. Yeah. Probably pretty tired. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons in killing them softly. James Gandolfini's performance is like one of the best I've ever seen um, as just this yeah. beaten down guy. And also the uh, I'm trying a blank now on the name of the actor who plays the detective in the movie. Oh, you know who else is in it is Alex Rocco. He's in the movie. Hey, all right. He plays a bank robber. Uh, he's great. But the detective, I forget the actor's name now. Robert Jordan, something like that. But the detective's name, the character's name is Dave Foley, which is funny to me. <laughs> uh, but there's also a part at the end when they go, uh, um, Robert Mitchum and Peter Boyle and a third character go to a Boston Bruins game. And it's the Boston Bruins and the Blackhawks. And it's like Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito and all the guys are actually in the movie. And they like, that's awesome. That never happens now though, because now you'd have to like pay to license this sort of thing. And it would be a big thing. Uh, but I guess in the early seventies, mid early mid seventies, you could just shoot at a game and, uh, maybe throw the Bruins a few bucks for that. But it yeah. would, now it would be like some fake team, you know, or it would be, if it was a real team, it would be so prominently featured that it's right. cle- it, it basically a product placement at right. that point. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's great. Uh, I'll have to borrow from you. Yeah, definitely. I should have brought it actually. Uh, and then I watched, uh, Kino recently put out, see, here's one. I, uh, I'm not going to say I take a bullet. It's a good movie, but, uh, Kino has been putting out a lot of, uh, Mario Bava films. Oh yeah. Yeah. And they put out the evil eye, okay. which is a, uh, which is good. I mean, Mario Bava is a great director. I think, yeah. um, in watching these films like black Sabbath and black Sunday, I've realized that he has this reputation of being like the guy who did the gore and the giallo thing. Yeah. Uh, and he did that and he was good at it, but it, but reducing him to that papers over the fact that he was an all around really talented director, just really good visual storyteller. Um, and the evil eye is sort of his, it's, he just can't like, he's just so good that it's a wor- very workmanlike film. He, uh, it's, it's more of a mystery than a horror movie. It has horror elements, you I know, like that. Um, you know, there's, there's imagery. There's like, there's a great part early on where a woman 
dies, an older woman dies of natural causes in bed. And then her body starts moving and, and it's really creepy. And then you realize, Oh, the cat's trying to climb up the bed and shaking the bed. It's like a little thing, but the image of this body that you know, this woman has just died and the image of her, like sort of rocking back and forth is really creepy. So he, he gets that stuff in there, but it's, it's more mystery. It's actually very Hitchcock informed. In fact, the alternate title and the title of the alternate version, which is also on the blue and I haven't watched yet is the girl who knew too much. Hmm. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, uh, it's, it's perfectly nice. It's a nice movie. Did you ever see uh, Diabolique? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a great movie. Yeah, and that mm-hmm. it's, it seems kind of like it sounds like that, like a mystery, yeah, but it has a, some yeah. creepy stuff too. Yeah, Kyle Anderson uh, talks a lot about Mario Bava, and he thinks he's marvelous. We should. I need to see any of his movies, and then we should have him on to talk about them. Well, I now have three Blu-rays over the past couple of years. Uh, the, yeah, Black, Black Sabbath, Black Sunday, and this one. I don't have Blood and Black Lace, which right. is supposed to be great, or Bay of Blood. Bay of Blood is the one that Kyle uh, talks about okay. and really likes. Um, okay, I watched... Is it my turn? Yep. Uh, I watched the David Fincher... Uh, he was involved. It wasn't like... I don't know. It's hard to... There's so many layers of uh, qualifying on this, but mm-hmm. I saw the assembly cut of Alien 3. Alien Cubed. Alien Cubed. I never understand why that three is so small and far up there. It makes no (laughs) sense. But anyway, uh, but yeah, uh, what this is, uh, I'm sure at this point, if you're, if, if, if you're a a fan of the alien series, you've heard about just the horrendous treatment of alien three by Fox and, uh, just the way David Fincher was just, horribly mistreated. Um, and the resulting film just feels strange and doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel complete. It just feels perfunctory and like, all right, let's just I, throw this together and do I don't what think we I've can. Watched it since I was in high school. Cause I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember there are things that I liked about it and those things. And so the assembly cut is, it's as close to a director's cut as is available. Like, um, you know, uh, cause there was stuff that he wanted to shoot that they didn't even get to shoot. And so it's like, they weren't going to go back and do that, but they did for the Blu-ray set. Uh, they actually brought in some of the actors and had them, uh, dub over their lines so that the audio is better. So, I mean, it, it looks as complete as it can and it's two, it's about two and a half hours and it's much, much better, um, as one would expect. And, it feels like a much more worthy part of the alien saga. Um, and when you watch the assembly cut and then you watch the theatrical cut and I've watched both of them recently, um, you come to realize like, Oh, this, there, this is real magnificent Amberson shit happening (laughs) right here. Like, and I, and, and, uh, the Blu-ray set, is so comprehensive as far as making of. And I think they spend a lot of time on alien three and just how much stuff went wrong. And it's just amazing how much a studio can fuck up a movie, <laughs> especially one is don't be wrong. I don't, I don't think, I don't think you should take this attitude, but it's like, it's an alien movie. There were two of them before that. And admittedly, the second one kind of raised the stakes and added some elements. But like at this point, people know what they want. People know what to expect. If you get somebody who will just, you know, tinker with it a little bit, making it and make it a little bit special. That's fine. It's like 
these movies are going to make money. What, what, you know, this movie did great uh-huh. despite it not being very good. Like, well, why do you, and then I, alien resurrection, which is a movie that I have come to appreciate more than I used to. Uh, that one again, there's just like, well, man, we got it. We don't have the budget. It's like, well, what, the, what is your fucking problem? Like <laughs> it's, and I think I'm approaching it from a two, a 2015 attitude, which is, we'll make movies for $200 million because we know we'll make our money back. Right, like, right. I think, I think even, even in the nineties is like, well, we can't guarantee it'll make money. So we will skimp a little bit. Uh, but anyway, sorry, I've spent too long talking about the assembly cut. It's worth watching. Okay. It definitely is. It, it will kind of make you look at alien three, uh, a different way. And it, it seems fairly definitive. Like at this point, I'll probably be purchasing that Blu-ray set. I'm oh. borrowing it right now and I'll probably revisit the assembly cut. Somewhat you regularly. Should, you should just not give it back to whoever you borrowed. You know what? Here's the thing, though. Uh, I was watching Aliens, and mm. uh, right around the hour mark, there's a little uh, skip in the disc, so uh, oh, I'm going to return this back to this person. Or just throw it in the garbage. Just throw <laughs> in the garbage yeah. and then keep the rest. Yeah. Got it. Um, all right. Uh, a couple of quick quick uh, rewatches. I rewatched uh, Goodbye to Language. Um, notice I didn't call it Goodbye to Language 3D this mm-hmm. time because I watched it in 2D. And uh, I've kind of torn here because I liked it a lot more in 2D. Interesting. Even though it's clearly supposed to. So I don't know. Did I like the movie if I liked it in the way it's not supposed to be seen? That's tough. Uh, and I think because I think there's a there's a misanthropic, a strong misanthropic strain in uh, John Luke Godard's work. Yeah. And I think personally, I think he likes the fact that the 3D was fucking headache inducing yeah. and made the movie uglier because uh, there's a lot of ugliness in the movie, even without the 3d. But I was able to, when I wasn't focusing on the fact that my eyes hurt yeah, and was actually just watching the movie, I actually found it a lot more enjoyable. Boy, that is tough. <laughs> it's tough when it's like, like, well, you know, the director's instinct was to do this, but of course his instinct was basically to say, fuck you. Right. And, and it's like, and I'm not super thrilled with that instinct, but if that's what he wants to do, that's fine. That's tough. And th- and I think this is the kind of conversation that's going to be had more often when it comes to 3D. Yeah. As as more filmmakers embrace it. Yeah. Oh, the, the 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 Blu-ray has two discs. It has the three if in case you have a 3D TV, which I don't. Right. It has the 3D version, but uh I don't know. Maybe I'll take it over to my buddy's house. He has a 3D projector. I have a 3D TV. Do you? Yep. I didn't know you did that. You had that. Yeah, I don't use it. Uh, well, you, uh, very much. Do you I have s- glasses? I do. You should borrow my goodbye to language Blu-ray. Apparently not. <laughs> um, and then I also rewatched, as you know, cause I borrowed the DVD from you. I rewatched Robert Altman's shortcuts. Mm-hmm. I don't like this movie. I gotta say. Yeah. I, I don't know. Do you still like it? Uh, I like it less. Yeah. The, I'll say this. The more I've come to love Nashville, the less I like shortcuts. And I think it's because I, as a person have changed. I think I am less, well, hang on. I think I'm probably more cynical than I used to be, but I don't like that. I don't <laughs> want to be that. Uh, I think I've become more humanistic in my desires. And so I think, uh, and I think Nashville is definitely more humanistic with a side of cynicism. Whereas I think shortcuts is virtually nihilistic in, in the way it approaches humanity. I still appreciate a lot of the stuff about it. Well, there's it, you know, Robert Altman is a world-class filmmaker. So, 
just in terms of pure construction, yeah, it's you know it's beautifully made and, and it's, some great performances. Yeah, it. and, it's, and I mean you you have to tip your hat to a movie that's three hours long that's entirely watchable. You know, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't drag even despite being three hours. Yeah, um, but yeah, I don't like its point of view of humanity, and I also I know this. I don't know how you feel about this point of view, but it's like supposed to be this overview of Los Angeles, but there's like two speaking parts of color, like of people of color oh, in sure. the entire movie, like Los Angeles. I live in Los Angeles. It's not that white parts I, of it are, but it's, this is a three hour movie that is, uh, that seems to purport to cover so many different walks of life of Los Angeles and everyone's white. Do you think it's supposed to be that? Like I, I, in watching it and admittedly I haven't in a while and I don't know if I've watched it since living in Los Angeles. I think that would make a difference, but, um, I don't think I've ever viewed it as, a portrait of the city. I think it's just, here's no, these I, characters. I think, yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. Cause I think it's a portrait of people across a lot of different, um, economic lines. Yeah. And the fact that it's set in Los Angeles makes it seem disingenuous yeah, that right. all of them are white. Whereas the stories that it, takes place that it's based on take place in the Pacific Northwest, which yeah. is a much wider part of the country. And so that sort of makes a little more sense, but it seems like I'm just watching the movie and thinking like there are a number of characters because this is, like I said, it's more about these economic lines. There yeah. are so many characters in the movie that like, there's no reason like this person doesn't have to be white. There's not yeah. like, that's not, a part of this character. It, 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 it stuck out like a sore thumb to me. And that's like, like you said, how you've changed. I've also changed in a way when, when I, I you know, I was in high school the first time I saw shortcuts and that probably didn't occur to me at the time. Um, yeah. but so what you're saying is, uh, in this way, Paul Haggis's crash oh, is my, way better than shortcuts. Yeah. Much better movie. Okay. Um, it is odd when you think about it that like Altman's Nashville has more, uh, more substantial uh, right. characters of color. Yeah. And it takes place in Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. Than the one that takes place in Los Angeles 20 yeah. years later. Uh, like the, the two black characters in shortcuts, one of them is the guy in the next hospital room. Right. Uh, and he's a perfectly nice guy. Yeah. Um, but he only has like two scenes and four lines. Yeah. Uh, and then the other guy is the creep at the bar who, offers to give Jennifer Jason Lee $200 for a blowjob when her husband's outside smoking a joint. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't, <laughs> those are the two black characters the, in the movie. I would say not the best rep- representation, but then I realized nobody in the film is a good representation <laughs> right, of anybody. <clears throat> yeah. It's a film that I still, I, I, I'm not sure. Like it's like, well, I own it. I'm not going to sell it. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's also not a thing I feel like I, want to rewatch. Cause I feel like it's just, there's not, there's like maybe one or two likable characters in the whole thing. Can I ask you where you got this DVD? Is that, did you buy that used? Uh, I might have because it, you just have the DVD case there, but I remember from working at a video store when it came out, mm. it came in a box that was the DVD case and the short story, a book of the short story. Oh, yeah, I think I bought it used. Okay. Yeah. Um, Oh, in fact, I know I did. I bought it at, uh, Broadway video in Chicago. Okay. Um, so yeah. Do you feel like you want to rewatch Nashville at this point? I rewatched Nashville not that long ago. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Still don't like it. I liked it a little better than I did, okay. uh, back in whenever we first watched it. 
Um, okay, uh, what's next? Uh, you, you are next. Okay. I watched, uh, I forget how you say his last name. I don't have it in front of me. Andrew B-U-J... Bajalski? Bajalski? I think so. I think that's it. Okay. Uh, Andrew Bajalski's Results, starring Guy Pierce, Kevin Corgan, and Kobe Smulders. The great Kobe Smulders. Yes. All three of them are great. It is... I'll say this. This feels more like a Tom McCarthy film than The Cobbler. (laughs) Um, Except... Okay, so... Some of the best acting work Guy Pierce has ever done, and I don't say that lightly. Um... Like, he regularly stars in movies that are my favorite movies of that year. Whether it be The Proposition, or L.A. Confidential, or Ravenous, or, you know, like, it's weird how he just winds up in these movies. Um, And he's really great. Like, I don't think of him as a guy who can play comedy really great, uh, like, really well. Um, But he does in the film. And Kevin Corrigan is, of course, always dependable comedically and Kobe Smulders as well. Um, the characters are pretty well defined and then uh, the, the writer director does not seem to know what to do with them. Hmm. Like it's a romantic comedy, I guess. Uh, it's a film that, you know, there are other characters, but it's basically about these three people And then one of them, I guess, takes himself, not even out of the running. It's not a love triangle. He just goes away. (laughs) We don't really know where, and we don't know why. And then characters do things and say things, and we don't know why. And it's here's the thing. I like a shaggy dog kind of movie, and it feels like that. Mm -hmm. I like a film that that says, screw you and your expectations. We're going to go at our own pace. I like that. Um, I like that people don't. You know, not everybody in life will behave in a way that is completely consistent with what we think of them. I like all of that. But somehow this film just doesn't seem to have a core. He like. Like, if I mean, I'm a big fan of like John Cassavetes and his films are kind of chaotic at times, but at their core, there's there's something that the director understands and something that is consistent and the thing that keeps these characters going. This film doesn't have that. It mm. feels very unstable. And I felt by the end when it was over, I was like, Oh yeah. All right. Sure. What the hell? And which is a bummer because the, the three perform those three performances are wonderful. And occasionally, occasionally uh, like there are scenes that are written very well, but overall it just does not hang together. And he's the guy that made uh, Computer Chess. Yeah, I was going to ask, did you see Computer Chess? I did, and I like that a lot. I like that a lot. That's a movie that I saw, and I liked it, and I find myself thinking about that movie more Yeah, more than I would have thought I would when, I, when the movie was over. Yeah. I still think about it a lot. It's, it's a really cool movie. It's Yeah, I like it a lot. And But like at no point, if someone said, hey, this guy is making a romantic comedy, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you would probably say, oh, I don't, I don't think that's going to work, and you would be correct. So um, I'm, I'm going to move on to TV. Or do you have more movies? I have one more movie. Let's go with you then. It is called Murder by Decree. What it is, is this? Uh, currently is on... Mur- this is not Murder by Death. No, this is a different thing. And this is... Uh... It's funny how tonight... Well, the other... This is in the other episode. Oh, uh, yeah. We talked about the chief detective on our other on our main episode. That's a, that's a teaser for yeah. what's coming up. And now we're talking about Murder by Death. That's very strange. Uh, Murder by Decree is direct... It's a Sherlock Holmes movie. Directed by Bob Clark... Director of A Christmas Story. Right, and, and Black Por- Sunday. And, and Porky's. Right. But he did, 
what is it black sunday the the horror I, movie oh um, they remade it a few years no, ago with um, the original uh not black sunday that's the mario above what's the, what am i thinking of the um silent night no the one that's is that what it is it's at a there are horror fans listening who are who yeah, think I'm an idiot black right nativity now. i don't think that's it. that's a different thing yeah i don't remember i'm sorry i was so focused on uh on you know Porky's black christmas black christmas that's the one thing i said nativity i was so close you were very close i said silent night i was so close damn it um but yeah uh so a, a guy with very odd directorial skills yeah um and so it's a sherlock holmes movie starring christopher Plummer as sherlock holmes and james mason as watson and they're great as i'm sure you can imagine uh, and they are on the trail of Jack the Ripper, and it is done. It, it's a film from nineteen seventy something. I'm sure you can look it up. Um, and uh, you know what else he directed? Yeah, I see. I ba- see on baby your, geniuses. Baby geniuses. You know, sometimes when you cast a wide net, you get a, a, a some bad fish. Sometimes, but um, <laughs> is that a saying? It is now. Okay. Uh, and so. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when you f- focus on like, oh, he did Black Christmas because this feels very moody and atmospheric. It feels kind of like a horror movie. I mean, it's dealing with Jack the Ripper, but it's also Sherlock Holmes. Um, but it's also done with a kind of a modern sensibility as far as how Holmes and Watson approached like the underbelly of London and that kind of thing. It's it's actually a really good movie. And I think, uh, I think people, it's on Netflix. I think people, uh, if they enjoy Sherlock Holmes, if they enjoy Jack the Ripper, uh, I think they, uh, would, would like the movie. I, I'm glad I watched it. Okay. Um, let's move on to TV. Okay. Uh, modern family ended its season. Good for it. Uh, we'll save amazing race. Uh, mad men ended. It was a series finale. Okay. It didn't just end it. See, I don't know if you heard about this. I thought we already talked about Amazing Race. About the no, finale? In the last one. I don't think we did. Yeah, I don't remember anymore. Maybe you and I did. Hmm. I guess it's possible. It's possible. Um, Mad Men ended. Uh, it was very good, I think. I think it was... Um, I think the ending was... Uh, the word that's on the tip of my tongue is cynical. And I don't necessarily want to say that because that feels like it's a judgment because I feel like it came by it honestly. And I think there's a lot of humanism in it, but there was kind of a, like, you know, we're seeing Don in these last few episodes, clearly searching for something. And there's this feeling that like, he's going to have a breakthrough. And at the end it's like, Oh, (laughs) I guess it only lasted uh, uh, for that long. And he, you know, returned to who he was. I mean, you could say it's realistic, like in the sense of like, Hey, I'm, I'm a realist. I know how people are. Yeah. You know? Um, and I also hesitate to say cynical because I I mean, I don't let this sort of thing affect my opinion, but reading interviews with Matthew, Matthew Weiner after the fact, I don't think he sees it that way at all. Hmm. Um, I think I've learned that Matthew Weiner has a different, um, and this makes sense given that he made a show about advertising has a different opinion of ad- advertising than I do, which, you know, I tend yeah. to, uh, I tend to default to advertising being in 99% of its, uh, of ways, uh, an evil thing, a thing that is bad for us. Um, and I guess I probably am somewhere in the middle. If, if, if you feel like he, 
is somehow in favor of it. I don't think, but I, I think he, I think Matthew Weiner, um, is more in agreement in agreement with Don Draper than I realize, because Don mm-hmm. Draper actually finds human connection in these stories that he's tell he's using advertising to tell yeah. stories the way that an artist would. Um, and I've always found there to be a sort of sick joke to that, that, um, maybe this means something to him, or maybe he's harnessing something that means something to him to use in vulgar ways, but this is just about selling shit. Uh, and that sort of, uh, it's, you know, it's part of the reason I don't like to watch movie trailers because I feel like, there, there's artistry to them, but they're commercials first, and I don't uh, want to buy into that. Um, and I get the feeling that in reading interviews with Matthew Weiner, that he is more willing to agree with Don that there, there actually can be um, things that are, there, things could be insightful or profound in advertising. And maybe he's right, and maybe I just like because of my personal. Uh, philosophies. I have a, a wall up against uh, accepting that that might be true. I think the tough thing is the idea that like an advertising agency, like, I mean, when you think about it, it's no different than, Oh, I'm trying to sell a political opinion or something like that. But it's like, but that's something that the artist himself feels passionately about. If, if people only ever make commercials for products that they love, I think I'd feel better about it. You know what I mean? But there's <laughs> right. something about like, all right, uh, this product, sell it this way. I mean, cause there are commercials that I, that I watch. And these days what they do is, um, like, uh, there's a commercial for Macy's that shows how Macy's has been portrayed in film throughout the years. So it's like, it's, it's, uh, very much, showing a sense of history, uh-huh. showing a sense of cultural awareness that even movies through the decades are aware of Macy's. And so you just naturally feel like, yeah, I guess it is kind of a staple. It's like, I guess it's not going anywhere. That's kind of neat. It's a, you know, it's, it's a, an institution and it's like, it's like, yeah, that's kind of neat. It's like, that's a pretty good commercial. It's like, it is a good commercial because it's getting me thinking about in a, uh, this store in a different mm-hmm. way. But when it comes right down to it, any store that's as old as Macy's could potentially have been done the same way. Yeah. You know, um, I'll say this, there are exceptions to my, uh, feelings such as, what was it like three years ago, four years ago, the, the Super Bowl Coca-Cola ad that was the, um, the national anthem in different languages. Oh yes, different, yes. I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. That's like one of the most powerful things I've ever seen that. So that does it for me. Apparently there are, there are ways to find there are cracks in my facade and the, if a commercial hits the right buttons, it will get to me. Cause that's one of my favorite things I've ever seen. Hmm. I've, uh, you know what? There is a Coke ad. There's a Coke ad that I love <clears throat> from a few years ago in which it's basically like grand theft auto. It's like a video game okay. and you're driving through and just like, you know, uh, like the police are chasing you and stuff. And, uh, and then I think you get out and you drink a Coke and suddenly, and like you start sharing Coke with like all these other people and everybody starts singing together. And it's, it's like this idea of like this thing that again, because it's Coke, it's something that everyone knows uh-huh. and likes theoretically. Um, it's like, it brings these people together and it's, 
and it's using this other thing that like, Hey, Coke is universal, but these violent video games and stuff that like, they're, they're kind of a recent thing and there's a cynicism to that, but you know what? We can all get together and <laughs> buy the world of Coke, so to speak. There we go. Um, I all right. So bring it all back around. That's Mad Men. I also, I watched an episode of a series, an Irish series called Moon Boy. Chris O'Dowd. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Have you watched any of that? I have not. It is funny. It is very funny. Uh, people who listen to Hey Watch This have already heard me talk about this. But uh, the episode that I watched, the two young boys uh, go to stay with an uncle in Dublin, mm-hmm. and they're from this small town. And so one of the running gags, there's two great running gags about du- Dublin. One of them is that these boys are so sheltered in their small town that they think every big thing they've ever heard of is in Dublin because it's like the biggest city they can imagine <laughs> so their itinerary for their trip includes like seeing big ben and the taj mahal and going to see a broadway show <laughs> and going to sea world and like everything they could possibly think of is is in dublin the other joke that's a little more absurd and silly which is more up my alley is that uh, it also it takes the show takes place in the early 90s um <laughs> bono is apparently a very common name in dublin within this show <laughs> and so they meet multiple people named bono who all all have friends named Larry or Adam or the other members of, yeah. of you two. And then there's one that the pinnacle of the, the hardest I left where I almost had to pause the show was one of the guys named Bono. They meet is losing his temper. And he says, I'm very close to the edge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that got me. Uh, and then um, before I hand this back off to you, I will talk very quickly about the flash finale, which is not a show. I've show that I drop in on from occasion. I have not watched the whole season. This finale was fantastic. And it makes me think the flash is maybe one of the best shows that I'm not watching. Hmm. And maybe one of the best superhero things that there is. And this, you know, outside of comic books, obviously that's where superheroes shine. Uh, but there are all sorts of movies and TV shows now about superheroes and the flash, um, should probably be considered in the top tier, uh, based on what I've seen. Okay. Um, yeah. I saw, I haven't seen anything except the first episode. And then you saw the last of the season. Yeah. And thought it was great. Yeah. I think does I it involve, it does it involve a uh, gorilla grod? I like that character. No, it's, um, what's his name? Uh, played by Tom Cavanaugh. He's reverse flash. Reverse flash. Name. Uh, or professor zoom. I th- is that a different character? I don't know if it's a different character. I don't think okay. they called him that in this. Um, I guess that makes sense, but be weird. Um, the story, I don't know if you follow reverse flash. Tom Cavanaugh was like a good guy who was secretly a bad guy all season. By the end of the season, they figured out that he's a bad guy. And he's basically said, I can be, I can leave your life. I can no longer be a part of your life. If you help me build this time machine, I'll get out of here. And you can also go save your mother whose death, you know, set off your entire life. Um, and so it's sort of like a, you know, you uh, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type of thing between the Flash and Reverse Flash. And of course, it doesn't go exactly as as planned. But um, the fact that a CW, you know, kind of corny superhero show can have a scene like this where he he goes back in time to the day that his mother died and gets to as she's bleeding out, gets to talk to his mother as a grown person gets to talk to the mother that died when he was a baby. It's pretty it was, rough. it was incredibly moving. Uh, and the fact that this show is capable of that is one of the reasons that I made sure to mention it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, what's your first TV show? So, uh, I've been sick and, uh, Jen was out of town. So I had a lot of time to watch stuff. So I watched all of unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. 
and I, I don't, I don't think I'd say I loved it, but I really liked it. Um, it, it very much, I mean, it's not hard to believe that it's kind of from the creators of 30 rock. It feels like it, it feels like the same universe. Uh Um, it feels like Kimmy could run across Liz Lemon at any point. Um, and I, I really, I find it poignant, uh, poignant at, at times, but very much committed to the joke throughout. And sometimes the jokes are a little like John Hamm's character. Um, a lot of the jokes that they have with him are pretty obvious. Um, I still laugh, but I feel like he probably could have done something different with that. But then there's a scene, it's a flashback where he's being very insidious. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And, and it's, kind of an amusing scene, but it's more like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a show that I think you'd mentioned this, like it doesn't often delve into just how horrendous the fact of this thing is. Um, but when it does, it actually does. Yeah. And I especially like another episode where Kimmy basic Kimmy and, um, Jacqueline, basically get involved in another cult, but they don't realize that's what it is. Oh, the one with uh, Nick Kroll. Yeah. Yeah. I love that episode. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah, and that was a good one. so, and I like a lot of the characters. I think Carol Kane is very well utilized. Um, and, uh, the character's name is Titus Andromedon, but <laughs> I don't, and the actor's name is Titus something. It's not Welliver. That's a different person. Burgess. Burgess. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I think. I think the cast is really great. I. I. It's. A, it's a very well, well written, well acted show. I'm excited for the next season. I don't know if they've. I. There hasn't been an announcement of a season two, right? But I assume they're going to do it. I think so. Yeah. Okay. And I can't think why they wouldn't. I think the show is pretty popular. And but we don't know. Netflix doesn't release numbers, but yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, all I know is that the people I know were talking about it for a week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the way. So, but yeah. Stupid Netflix release model. I hate it. But now this new show they're releasing classically. Which one is it? Between. Between. That's right. I watched right. the first episode. And How was it? Snooze. Oh, it all right. No good. No good. <laughs> In a way, it's just like, I can live with a snooze if I'm, if I can watch all 10 at once. <laughs> but like, <laughs> If you're going to bring me back next week, you got to be exciting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so listeners, if you uh, have not watched Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, give it a watch. It's good stuff. I think they have. I think you're the last one. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, okay, let me burn through a couple more TV shows and then we'll wrap this up. Um, I know you have more, but uh, uh, there was an Adventure Time episode where uh, now I, I know you've seen some adventure time i saw the first season okay is the cosmic owl in the first season at all not that the, i remember yeah the the that fir- the first season is pretty finn and jake heavy yeah it expands its world as it goes on i enjoy tree trunks um <laughs> so do i uh so adorable but the cosmic owl is an owl that if you if you're having an a having a dream mm-hmm. seems like a normal dream right but then the cosmic owl is in your dream that means that that dream is a prophecy that will come true oh okay so the, they did an episode called Hoots from the Cosmic Owl's point of view about his daily life, about his jo- his job is to get these little tokens that allow him to enter people's dreams and to make those dreams come true. And he is voiced by Emma Ed Walsh. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, great. And he um, essentially develops a crush on someone someone's dream self and ends up 
neglecting his duties and going to dreams he's not supposed to go to in order to meet this dream person. Hmm. But of course that because he's now showing him dreams he wasn't supposed to show up in, it has huge effects potentially, yeah. you know, there's sort of a, uh, this is what adventure time does. It does this sweet, goofy episode, but then there's this like omen that he accidentally made come true about the candy kingdom falling apart and princess bubblegum dying. And because he happened to be in the dream when it happened, now it's yeah. a prophecy that could come true. And so, so it his, ends on this so very his heavy. presence is what makes it a prophecy. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. see. Um, so, uh, it was a fantastic episode. Let in, me ask you this. <laughs> like, do you think M. Emmett Walsh had any idea, not to imply he's senile, but that's a weird show. And he seems like he would have dense mythology. Like, yeah. I feel like he's just like, what the, whatever. Yeah, he's a I don't, I don't give a shit. Let's just, but do he this. wasn't, he's not phoning it in because it's a very emotional performance. Um, cause he's the cosmic is a lonely guy and yeah. he finds a connection with this, with this, uh, bird woman. Um, and M. Emmett Walsh is very much playing the, uh, all the emotions that it's a, it's a fantastic episode. Did I tell you that I actually went and watched uh, a couple of scenes involving Tim Curry's vocal performance on adventure time? Wait, who was he on adventure time? Uh, I don't remember the name of the character, but it's like a big, uh, big frightening grandmother character who might appear to wait. No, that's no, that's not, not adventure. Time. That's, that's, uh, that's uh, over, over the, the garden, garden wall. wall. That's it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. I watched so that. you watch that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it was wonderful. Yeah. And creepy. Yeah, creepy yeah. as hell. Yeah. That's great stuff. Um, I also watched, have you heard of Isabella Rossellini's green porno? I've heard of it. Yes. So she did these, it's a stage performance in some short films where it's about the sex lives of different animals and insects. Mm -hmm. And she acts them out. She puts on costumes and acts them out. And ovation did a special called Isabella Rossellini's green porno live. And I watched it thinking it was going to be, Oh, it's a live performance thing, but really it was some live performance mixed with mostly being a documentary about, the green porno thing. It was kind of, yeah, I was kind of like, ah, I wish I would have rather, I like the idea of it just speaking for itself. Yeah. That's what I would have, would have preferred. So that was just okay. But the other special that I watched was friend of the show. Jen Kirkman has a Netflix special oh, yeah, yeah. called I'm going to die alone and I feel fine. And this is not just because she's a friend of the show. It's so great. It's hilarious, but also it's kind of up my alley in a lot of ways as someone who is and plans to remain childless mm. by choice. You know, I'm 32, right? That's all. Yeah. I'm 32. I'm at the age when, well, I mean, if I were still in Missouri, I'd be like, yeah, you know, you, you should have four or five kids. Oh, by yeah, now, yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, but I'm at the age where, you know, I have friends who are having kids. Um, it's, a it, it's a part of my life that I know people with kids or that I'm around kids sometimes at social yeah. events. And I, the fact that Jen Kirkman is someone who is in the same boat as I am, like really not interested in kids and kind of feels sometimes, um, adrift in this world where like everyone is doing this thing that seems so foreign and alien to me Yeah, that is so normal and fulfilling to them. These people are my friends, but I feel such a disconnect in that point of view is so prevalent in this, in this special, uh, and so close to, uh, my own feelings that I found it, uh, I just thought it was wonderful. So on my iPad, I have a game, uh, I have the Sims uh-huh. and one of my Sims families 
has a baby. It's my choice. Uh huh. You know, I think I went, I think it was one of the quests, but I did it and I view it as such a hassle. <laughs> like every time it's just like, Oh, the baby needs to be fed. It's like this baby isn't, isn't giving me any money. You know, <laughs> like all these other Sims have jobs. They can grow crops and make me money and advance these quests. This fucking baby doesn't do anything. And because it can't do anything on its own, I now need to use one of my other Sims to take care of this baby. <laughs> so now not only is the baby not making me any money, this Sim is not making me any money either. And so my attitude towards my Sim baby makes me has genuinely made me worried about the kind of father <laughs> I would be where I'm just like, Oh, what a fucking waste of time this is. And just like, I, I regret, I regret having you Sim baby. <laughs> um, well, you should watch this Jen Kirkman thing. Sounds I mean, like she, it. She's also kind of, uh, she had a, she was married yeah. and is divorced. Yeah. She's uh, so in addition to being anti kid, she's also anti marriage, but then she says, I'm not anti marriage so much as I'm anti wedding. This is the one part that came a little close to home. Cause yeah. she made fun of people who said, who say, uh, no, our wedding was fun. It was more like a party. Cause my wife and I have essentially same said exactly that thing. Yeah. Um, but she was like, no, it wasn't. No party starts with church, <laughs> um, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, anyway, um, that's pretty much everything. I, I want to mention inside Amy Schumer because she's just knocking it out of the fucking park week after week right now, especially this week's episode, which is called eighties ladies and had sort of a <laughs> running, uh, gag about like women being like char- modern characters being sort of like, uh, down in the dumps about, you know, work pressures or love life pressures, whatever. And the eighties ladies would show up, which are four ladies with like brightly colored clothes and with, uh, you know, shoulder pads and big hair and bangs straight out of like nine to five or whatever. Yeah. And would just cheer them up just by being eighties ladies. And they would dance and they would smoke cigarettes because that's that's what eighties ladies did. Um, Jerry Seinfeld made a very brief, almost (laughs) wordless cameo, uh, on the show, which I thought was great. Um, and then in keeping with the 80s theme of the episode, it also had a, a fantastic um, weird science spoof, which was three three women mm-hmm. writing into a computer their who their perfect man is. And the women yeah. were Amy Schumer and then in a nod to Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants uh, fans, it was... Uh, America Ferrara and Joan of Arcadia, whoever her name... Yeah. What's her name? Amber Tamblin? Amber Tamblin? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Russ Tamblin, is that it? Russ Tamblin is her dad or it, grandfather or I, uncle? They're related. Yeah, I feel like it can't be dad because he's yeah, too yeah, old for Maybe that, grandfather. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and that, was a, that was a very funny... Uh, very funny bit that had, when they're naming all the... Na- they name like some stuff that makes sense and then like just it, like they're their perfect man keeps getting weirder, like (laughs) weak eyelids is one of the things. And like, um, loves his family, but his family's all dead. That's one. (laughs) And then the running joke is that America Ferrara, like every third thing she says is big dick. (laughs) And she's like, yeah. And then Amy Schumer's like, I wrote big dick. Do you want to come read it? And she's like, maybe put it in all caps. Uh, it was pretty great. Um, so yeah, that's it for me. What's your other TV, uh, show? 
Okay, you know what? Actually, it occurred to me. So I did watch Community this week. Okay, and it and I was reminded of it because they went to a wedding, okay. and it was very funny. Uh, I didn't love the episode. It wasn't bad. Keith David continues to do awesome, as one would expect. Um, but at the end, uh, so it turns out that the couple getting married uh, are first cousins, and they didn't realize it. Um, <laughs> and uh, but they decide to uh, they decide to go ahead with it. And, um, and so at the end, the tag at the end is, uh, a guy saying, hello, I'm writer Briggs, uh, Briggs Hatton. And that is the name of the writer who wrote uh-huh. the episode, but he's played by Matt Gorley, uh, friend of the show, Matt Gorley. Right. And he's like, I wrote this episode and I was told that if I was going to write an episode that included, that, in- that was, uh, positive about incest that I would have to come out at the end of the episode and identify myself. <laughs> and it was, it's, it's very funny. And it was, uh, it's the kind of thing that Matt Gorley does very well, which is be very cordial and very friendly and completely oblivious to how he might come across. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And then I also, once again, I was sick. So I spent, Oh, sorry. I'll mention this other thing too. Uh, sorry. I just remembered. I watched a couple episodes. I guess you call them rewatch of the real ghostbusters, <laughs> uh, from when I was a kid. And I got to say first season was great. Like very adult. Okay. In many ways. Like one of them was called, wait, is this the one with the monkey? No, no, no. That's no, that's just ghostbusters. Okay. This was, and it was because of the existence of that cartoon that they called this the real Ghostbusters, which was associated with the film. So this was the one associated with the film. Yes. Not the one with the monkey. Not the one with the monkey. That one was just called Ghostbusters. Yes. Okay. Um, and, but like they have a, there's an episode, first off, it's animated really well, but there's an episode where like somebody, uh, a cult summons Cthulhu (laughs) and the Ghostbusters have to deal with him. And one of my favorite jokes that there's no way a kid would get is uh so they're looking at at Cthulhu rising out of the ocean and Egon is like he's like none of our equipment is powerful enough to stop it nothing can stop it we don't have a prayer and then <laughs> and then Peter go, he, Peter goes you're such a Pollyanna Egon <laughs> and I love I love that idea but anyway uh so I was enjoying those and it's and it's weird to look back and realize like and as time went on and they played up the role of Slimer and it became Slimer and the real Ghostbusters and it's okay. like, okay, it became more kid friendly. That first season, it's not that it's scary for kids, but there's some genuine creepy imagery there and uh, I kind of appreciate it. Anyway. Okay. I also watched the first two seasons of Bate, uh, Bates Motel on Netflix. Right. And uh, it's not bad. It's not a bad show. It's not great. There are episodes that are terrible. There are storylines that are terrible. Um, but overall... It's pretty good. Um, Vera Farmiga is really, really great as Norma Bates. And then Freddie Highmore as Norman is also great. Uh, Mr. Carbonell is in it as the sheriff of the town. Oh, I didn't know there was more than one lost connection because I know it's, yeah. it's a Colton Q's show. Yeah. And he's great in it as one would assume. And, uh, and what, and okay. So of course it's a prequel to psycho, so we all know where we're headed. 
which actually does, it really does make it, make this very tragic. Like you look at Norman and you just want good things for him, but you know that there are no good things for him. Right. And it's such a sad, it actually knowing where it ends up does make it very, it actually, I find myself getting more involved, not less. Um, and then Norma is kind of, uh, is not the crazy character that we, you would assume from the, from psycho. Uh, she is very protective and it basically toys. It puts out the idea that Norman is already well on his way to being crazy. Like he has blackouts and he doesn't remember what he, what happens during that. He doesn't take on another personality, not yet, but he's on his way there. And Norma, because she's so, she's very possessive of her son. Like, the best thing she could do for him is get him psychiatric help and maybe even send him somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but she doesn't do that. And basically it's this clinging instinct that is going to completely ruin everybody's lives. And that knowledge and just the frustration with her, like understanding why she wants to do this, but realizing like, can you not get out of your own way like you're being selfish basically and your huh. selfishness is going to bring about the absolute ruin of your son. It's really interesting on that level. That sounds that's the only thing that's ever made me want to watch the show. Yeah, anything having to do with the two of them is solid. And then there are other characters that work well and other characters that don't, but it's 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 not bad. And Nestor Carbonell is of course great. Of course. All right, do we have anything to say about the amazing race or should we just wrap this up? I think we already said it. Uh, you're, you're confident that we already talked about it. I don't think we did. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe we did like off mic, but uh, it was a, it was an okay. You know, it turned out to be an okay season. Yeah, we, we talked about it at the. We would have talked about it at the Griffin, didn't we? At the bar. The Griffin. Which the, one is that? Oh the yeah, bar that's where right. my wife had her birthday party. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's um, that would have been the night after it aired. Yeah, I guess that's true. So yeah. We didn't talk about it on the show. Oh, okay. Um, I, don't have, I don't have much to say about it, though. I'm yeah. tired at this point. We've been going on a long time. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, it wasn't a bad season. I'm interested to see if they're going to renew it, because they haven't announced that they are. Um, and it's not the first time it's been in trouble. But, um, well, but yeah, I, I was happy with who won. Um, me too. And I wrote my thoughts on the website, too. Yeah. And then, you know, there's not a whole lot of seasons of Amazing Race that have an arc with certain, for lack of a better term, characters. Yeah. But Haley and Blair have an arc. And the arc worked out pretty well. Yeah, I still think it ends with them never talking again, though. Oh, sure. Absolutely. (laughs) But I just mean as far as, like, the idea that she's just constantly... He's not listening, admittedly. But she's just constantly well, tearing she's not, him. He's not listening because it doesn't matter if he listens. There is that. Yes. The fact that she, like was so humbled by the mistake that she made, which is a perfectly honest. She wasn't stupid. She made a perfectly it honest happens, mistake yeah. and she was so humbled by it. And then almost immediately they get in the truck and she's like, buckle up, Blair, buckle up, Blair. Yeah. <laughs> Cause he like hesitates a second before putting his seatbelt on. Yeah. Well, like uh, that humility of hers lasted uh, 20 minutes. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, part of me in that moment, I feel like there was humility, but I think also there was shame and, we're going to get into my own therapy stuff here. Uh, shame will actually ca- uh, cause somebody to lash out. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so I think she felt very ashamed and so put it on him. Now, 
I'm not excusing her in that moment because right. she's a monster. <laughs> but uh, but I do. It is nice that in the end, she is the one that they. If she had gotten it right, they would have won. Yeah, that's right. I, think, I mean, I would have liked it if they won too. It I, I think it would have been, been fun been, for me. Yeah, but she didn't. She yeah. got it wrong. Perfectly honest mistake, though. Yeah, she didn't do anything. Absolutely, it was even the other people. Yeah. It for wasn't a negligent. Thought. Yeah. Thought. Oh, is that where the clue is? Yeah. Yeah. All right. But so. Oh, and then also, um, I won't comment on necessarily the season of Survivor, except that the guy who won is is the person that I wanted to win. He was a genuinely good guy. I liked him a lot. Uh, next season. So they did the thing where audience, the the audience weighed in on the website from 32 possible candidates and selected the 20 people that are going to be on next season. The people left from the studio to go. I mean, it was so it's, and this is the first time they've ever done it. And it's so interesting. Like survivor is back now. Like every, every once in a while, like the ratings will go down. People are like, I haven't liked the last few seasons. I think I'm going to drop it. And then they'll come up with something. Sometimes it's, uh, a very specific type of season like heroes versus villains. It's an all-star season. Here we go. And this thing has caused people has caused renewed interest in survivor. And so it's back now, <laughs> not that it was ever like, it wasn't going to be canceled. They renewed it for like three more years, but, 